0: You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Ephesians. Here's Nate. Well, as we turn to Ephesians chapter 5, Paul continues the theme of exhorting the church in Ephesus practically. He's given, of course, the doctrine of our great position that we have in Christ and has prayed for us and the church in Ephesus in chapters 1, 2, and 3 but he spent chapter 4 uh, exhorting especially in the second half of chapter 4 exhorting the church to put off the old man and to put on the new man the new nature that we've received from Christ it's time to apply this new nature and and let his life uh, be lived out uh, in our lives Here today, though, in Ephesians 5, the first 21 verses, Paul has, uh, he begins with a couple of uh, incredible exhortations, followed by two motivations for those exhortations. The first motivation, or excuse me, the first uh, exhortation is this, verse 1, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Just a, a... In one sense, a ridiculous exhortation. Here's something I want you to do, O church in Ephesus and Christians in every era and age. I want you to be imitators of God. (laughs) Just how in the world could a person imitate God? Now, obviously, Paul is not referring to the creative powers of God, the omniscience of God, the power of God. But to be God-like through simple imitation, you know, just to observe who God is and by the power of the Holy Spirit to allow the nature of God to be lived out with and inside of us. This is wonderful in the sense that we have a new father as Christians, a new father in Christ. That means that we're a part of his family and the father has embedded his nature inside of us and so to look at him as our example to say i want to be like god i want to walk like him and and live like him and of course this is found ultimately in the life of christ to say my desire is to be like jesus for so many of us we set the bar so low Uh, to compare ourselves to other people or to who we used to be is enough for us but Paul here says that that ought not be the case. We should set our sights upon the Lord himself and to say, I want to imitate God himself, his attributes, his character, his love, his compassion, his uh, joy, his uh, peace. Uh, I want to have what the Father has and to imitate him. He goes on with this exhortation to be godlike by expounding on it a little bit in verse 2 when he says and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to god so we're to be godlike through a simple imitation of something very specific the love of god walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So the chief way in which a Christian is to imitate God is through an imitation of the love of God as expressed on the cross of Christ, to simply walk in love. We might not be able to imitate God's omnipresence or omniscience or omnipotence, his independence or his uh, unchangeable nature. Uh, however, we can imitate the love of God in the cross of christ remembering that jesus you know first of all took that step of obedience and came for us there are people that we need to extend ourselves to he lowered himself he was uh, could not of course find anyone to serve or to love that was greater than himself so he lowered himself to serve and to love us he uh, girded himself with humility and ultimately uh, allowed himself to be brutally killed for the sin of the world. Jesus' sacrificial, humble love. And to just look at the people in our lives, you know, whether it's the children in your home, uh, or uh, parents that you're frustrated with, or classmates that you uh, rub shoulders with, church members that you... Uh, need to bear uh, with to extend yourself by walking in love and 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 running in the love of christ for them what great maturity this love is actually a garment over all of the other attributes that paul is holding out imitate god especially the love of god that the lord is looking for people who will live this sacrificial loving kind of life to have a motivation. I find a lot of young men, at least, love to get into ministry for reasons other than a love for God and a love for His people. They're motivated perhaps by being a part of a movement. They're motivated perhaps by even selfish motives, uh, their personal fame or feelings of accomplishment and personal satisfaction and meaning. But the best motivation The purest motivation, the motivation that won't fall flat on its face, is a love for God and a love for His people. Imitate God. Imitate His love. Now in verse 3, he goes on to an additional uh, exhortation. He says, "...but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints." Now, this isn't the first time that Paul clusters sexual immorality and the impurity that's attached to it with the sin of covetousness. He does the same thing in a cluster of uh, phrases in Colossians chapter 3. Four things he mentions that deal with sexual immorality, different words for, for them, impurity, sexual immorality, and so forth. But additionally, a fifth thing he mentions, covetousness. And and often it seems as if covetousness does have some kind of connection to sexual immorality and sexual sin. With covetousness, you are desiring something that is beyond the bounds of what God has seen fit to give to you. You covet it. You are jealous for it. You want it even though it doesn't belong to you. And that's what sexual immorality is, whether it's masturbation or uh, adultery or pornography or uh, flirtatious kind of engagement, uh, inappropriate banter, whatever it might be. You're trying to get something for yourself that is not appropriately and rightfully yours given to you by God and what is given to a person by God well when a man and a woman come together in a covenantal committed marriage to one another they have then been given by God one another including their bodies for their enjoyment and for their blessing and so anything outside of a covenantal marriage between a man and a woman until death do they part is considered sexual immorality by God. It's beyond the bounds of what God has allowed for you. And, of course, many of these Christians there in Ephesus, they weren't getting saved from a Judeo-Christian kind of background. They were getting saved from a context of paganism where their whole life had been lived in the context of sexual immorality. And so Paul has to especially exhort them, leave sexual immorality, leave out-of-bounds sexual activity. Adultery, premarital sex, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, prostitution, self-sex, pornography. These are all things, to name a few, that are out-of-bounds sexually. Hebrews 13 verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. This is the thing that God approves of sexually. And it's what God created. You know, really everything else is full of heartache, risk, pain, and in general creates brokenness within a culture and society. Just imagine a society in which the only sex that the society practiced was enjoyed in the marriage bed between a man and a woman all of the societal problems that would be destroyed if that were the case broken homes and families and i realize there are other reasons for broken homes and families besides sexual immorality but it's a pretty pretty big cause uh, behind it and if that faithfulness just came back and, and just existed across the board like it never has, imagine what it would do. And so Paul tells this new culture of people, this new group of people, the body of Christ, he says, sexual immorality must not even be named among you. When a river is flowing inside of its banks, a river can be a great blessing. But when a river overflows its banks, it causes great problems. And when... Uh, people engage in sexual activity beyond the boundaries that God has established problems will come. And this sexual immorality has destroyed God's people from the very beginning, whether it was through the counsel of Balaam over the people of Israel to King Balak, the Moabite King, whether it was Samson, the judge or David, the king or the church in Thyatira, sexual immorality has always been a great concern amongst the people of God. He goes on in verse 4 to say, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And so he says, listen, you know, beyond just what you do with your body, uh, make sure that with your mouth, the things that you speak, you're speaking things that are... Uh, thankful instead let there be thanksgiving Uh, not filthiness not foolish talk not crude joking now of course there are some who would take this to an illogical extreme and say that all humor you know any kind of joking is a bad kind of thing but in in reality all three of these filthiness foolish talk crude joking All three are referring to a dirty mind expressing itself in dirty conversation. It kind of reveals what the sexually immoral and covetous heart has going on inside of it. And so he says, you know, this ought not be amongst you. You need to put it out. Proverbs 7 speaks of a woman who has this in her life. We often think of these as very male sins, but... In Proverbs 7, we see that women can be guilty of filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking as well. Proverbs 7, verse 11 says that this woman who was sexually immoral, a great temptress, she is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Proverbs 7, verse 21, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. So to speak Well, and to drive out the negative or sinful speech, uh, to deal with it, uh, and to get that filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking out of our lives. Paul pinpoints it for the church in Ephesus. You know, a Christian has recovered a right and honorable view of the body and view of sex so for them to speak with filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking about sexual matters it's a real shame because they have recovered the beauty of sex and what is right about sex and so paul is telling them watch out for this entering into your life now to an incentive to live this kind of pure life he says verse five for you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous that is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of god let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things the wrath of god comes upon the sons of disobedience it's interesting here he says here's something you can be sure of let me give you an incentive here and Paul does use incentives all throughout his epistles for obedience to the Lord. Uh, Some of the incentives Paul uses is the future judgment, uh, number one. Number two, uh, the current reality of who we are in Christ. Number three, he uses the incentive of wisdom. And he also uses an incentive of the fullness of the Holy Spirit, just really enjoying everything that the Holy Spirit has for your life. And here the motivation that he uses is is simple. It's it's a future motivation, a future judgment motivation. He says, you can be sure of this. Anyone who practices these things, sexual immorality or impurity or covetousness, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, in Paul's day, uh, there were those who were teaching that sin actually promote grace see romans chapter 6 verse uh, 1 and 2 and paul is encouraging them he's saying listen you need to be sure of this to persist in that kind of lifestyle doesn't lead to grace it doesn't lead to the kingdom of christ and god it leads to death you have no inheritance in these things he says verse 6 let no one deceive you with empty words it's important for the church to receive this exhortation from Paul. There are, will be some who say, Listen, don't take it so seriously. You know, you're making such a big deal about sin. I don't think it's that big of a deal. I don't think it hurts us all that much. And and they sort of presume upon the grace of God. The, the Lord will forgive me. I, I ask him to wash me. I go to confession or some kind of idea like that. And Paul says, listen, don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Have this motivation inside of your heart. He says, verse 7, therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the lord so he again brings them back into their identity in verse eight he says you were darkness but now you are uh, light you know in paul's mind when a person becomes a christian uh, there is such a huge transference of uh, citizenship They're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of of light. And in Paul's mind, it's unfathomable to him to consider a person who has been transferred from such an ugly, uh, impoverished, broken, dark citizenship to such a wonderful citizenship, to be a saint in the light, to be pure and provided for, and light, and free. And yet, with that new citizenship, try to actually go back into the realm of darkness. I think in Paul's mind, the proverb that speaks of the man who is like a dog returning to its own vomit would be an appropriate expression for what that looked like to him. To see a Christian who was now in the light... Attempting to engage in the darkness, it was an absolute shock to Paul. He had to exhort the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, listen, you need to cleanse yourselves. And in my paraphrase, you need to come out from the world and be separate. Don't yoke yourselves to unbelievers. Why would you live this kind of life? So Paul was always exhorting the church. You are now the light. You were darkness. Past tense. Think about your new identity. Try to, verse 10, discern what is pleasing to the Lord. This should be the general attitude of a Christian. And and would to God that this would be the question that was overriding so many of our decisions i find that for so many believers the question that overrides their decisions is is this biblically permissible and you know in actuality for many people that would be a question of great maturity compared to the question that they actually ask many people just simply live life asking the question is this what i want to do Or is this what I feel like doing or not? Uh, So a better question for them would be, is this justified biblically? But a better question would be to say, does this please the Lord? I want to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Because that question right there uh, will render a lot of different answers for a lot of different people in a lot of different cultures and climates and positions. What can I do... That would be pleasing to the Lord. A general attitude of discerning. Not just God's will, but God's pleasure. He then goes on in verse 11 and says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Now, from judging Uh, from Paul's other epistles, when he talks of exposing the unfruitful works of darkness, uh, some of this is just what we're to do inside of the body of Christ. There will be things outside the body of Christ of which Paul would say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, not even Paul was a judge of. He can't judge the things outside the church, but the things inside the body of Christ expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, he says in verse 12. So don't bring this into the body of Christ. You are the light. But, verse 13, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You now, This is some kind of quote. Uh, it's difficult to say where from, perhaps from the Old Testament, perhaps a hymn. But he says to them, listen, we're to judge inside the church. We're to shine brightly outside of the church. Just live a life of lightness. You know, when a believer really lets the Lord inside of their lives, there's just something uh, powerful about their lives. You know, I, I reject the phrase, Uh, to preach the gospel and, when necessary, use words. uh, Partly because I think for so many Christians, they think that that means that you can preach the gospel without words. You have to preach words at some point. But to preach the gospel with your life as well is a, a wonderful thing to do. And to have a life that has been changed and transformed, the way that you treat your spouse the way that you treat your finances the way that you treat other people the way that you treat your children all of this should resonate loudly in a dark world that we are living in so he goes on to speak to them of a wise kind of lifestyle he says look carefully then verse 15 how you walk not as unwise but as wise again told you of the different motivations Paul would sometimes use. Sometimes the future judgment was a motivation, but here you have a motivation of wisdom. He says, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. You know, the reality is we have such a short little life that's in front of us and uh, we've got to make the best use of the time that God has given to us. He's given all of us a certain amount of time with which to invest and with which to use. We're to use our time well as Christians. We know from Scripture and from experience that it passes very quickly. Our life is like a vapor. Uh, the Days are swifter than a runner, it says in Job chapter 9. So we're to make our days worthwhile. Uh, Paul had said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that you can build a life, On the foundation of Christ, with things that would amount to gold, silver, and precious stones. Or you can build upon the foundation of Christ with things that would amount to wood, hay, and straw. Some of those things would perish, wood, hay, and straw, in the fire of judgment. And some of them would last. So he is speaking of living an eternal kind of life. And to make your life count, to let it be worthwhile. Now for some people this means that they get all frantic and they you know quit going to school or they quit working on a long-term project or something like that but some of the greatest things that you're going to do with your time are going to take perhaps all of your time or all of your life to be able to accomplish. You know if you're going to write that great and incredible book it takes years of education, years of writing decent books or even poor books to write that one that is just going to resonate with hundreds or thousands or millions of people. It just takes time. It takes time. So some of the greatest things that we do will be an accumulation of a lot of effort over a long period of time. Use your time well make the best use of your time therefore verse 17 do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is get into his word discover his word uh, and understand the will of the Lord now we learn from scripture that the Lord's will is for us to have faith to go through a process of sanctification especially in the realm of sexual immorality to be a thankful People to do good and to be a person after God's own heart. And so to, you know, really become a Bible person is the best way to understand the will of the Lord. Then in verse 18, he says, And do not get drunk with wine. For that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, this is a fascinating little phrase. First of all, he rebukes drunkenness, that putting of our minds into an altered state with with some kind of external substance. Now, this is a rebuke against intoxication or impairment. Unfortunately, the church has gotten into this large debate about whether it's okay to consume alcohol in any way at all uh, overlooking so many scriptures including the simple practice of communion that christ gave to us with the bread and the wine of all things it's drunkenness that paul rebukes here he says do not get drunk with wine for that's debauchery but be filled with the spirit it's better to be filled with the spirit You know, with drunkenness, you think that you're bold and you think that you're smooth. But in reality, you're a pitiful, sloppy kind of person. Your peace is not real. It is false. But with the Spirit of God, your peace is real. Your boldness is real. Your strength is strong. He says, be filled with the Spirit. Pray and ask the Holy Spirit to come upon your life, to fill you, to empower you, especially to strengthen you. So that you might be able to serve others in the body of Christ better and more effectively. He says, verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So here's a case for corporate worship. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. There's something about singing that gives the Spirit an opportunity in our lives. Giving thanks always, verse 20 and for everything to to god the father in the name of our lord jesus christ and then he uses this phrase submitting to one another out of reverence for christ having a submitted relationship to one another in this new culture and family or humanity that has been created called the church in christ jesus submitting to one another god bless you and amen Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.